Hello, everyone. You're listening to the Cancer Fight Podcast, recorded in Louisville, Kentucky, and produced by the Colon Cancer Prevention Project. Cancer Fight aims to highlight the stories of fighters and survivors of all forms of cancer, as well as educate the public about prevention and awareness. I'm your host, Dr. Whitney Jones, a gastroenterologist and founder of the Colon Cancer Prevention Project. Welcome to Cancer Fight. Today, we're talking with Dr. Paul Schroy, fellow of the American College of Gastroenterology, a professor emeritus at the Massachusetts General Hospital, a leading advocate and researcher in all of the things that have changed in colorectal cancer screening and prevention over the last 20 years. One of my fellow members on our task force of early age onset colon cancer and family history at the round table. Paul Troy, welcome from the Northeast. Well, thank you, Whitney. It's a great honor to participate in your podcast this morning. And thank you for that kind introduction. Although I am interested in free agency, I'm still at Boston University. I'm not at Mass General, but if they come knocking on the door, perhaps I'll reconsider. So All right. just to give you a little background uh, on how I got into this deal is I had the good fortune of spending a good part of my internal residency and GI fellowship at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, which provided me with a tremendous exposure to the challenges as well as the rewards of caring for patients afflicted with cancer. During this time, I had a chance of working closely with Dr. Sidney Winower, who was a pioneer in the area of colorectal cancer screening and principal investigator on the seminal national polyp study, which provided a wealth of information, as you well know, regarding the natural history of colorectal polyps and evidence-based surveillance strategies. Also during my fellowship, I had an opportunity of complementing my clinical experience with a stint in the laboratory, studying the potential role of differentiation therapy as a novel approach to colorectal cancer treatment. This exposure to all aspects of the cancer spectrum, that is basic science research, to screening, to diagnosis and treatment, instilled in me a desire to become a disciple of Dr. Winner's and pursue a uh, career in cancer prevention, even though at the time, evidence supporting the importance of screening wasn't nearly as well established as it is today. After leaving Memorial Sloan Kettering, I began my academic career at Boston University School of Medicine and Boston Medical Student, which is the largest safety net hospital in New England. There I continued my bench research for a few years, but soon realized my real calling was in clinical epidemiology and health services research, and thus decided to pursue a master's of public health degree at Boston University. Early in my career, I got to work closely with a number of outstanding cancer prevention scientists, including Dr. Marianne Kraut and Dr. Howard Coe, as many of the audience may know, later became Assistant Secretary of Health and Human Services under President Obama. These interactions not only provided additional mentorship to my clinical research activities, but opened numerous doors for me at a local, regional, and national level. This network enabled me to become a co-founder of the Massachusetts Colorectal Cancer Working Group, as well as a founding member of the National Colorectal Cancer Roundtable, both in the mid-1990s. I have remained active with the Roundtable ever since, having had the honor of serving as a member of its steering committee and co-chair of numerous task groups, including the Family History and Early Onset Task Group, which was the brainchild of Dr. Dennis Onan and the late Dr. Thomas Weber. 
This experience has been particularly rewarding with respect to not only being part of the roundtable's incredible success in increasing public awareness and screening rates in this country, but also establishing an ever-broadening network of impressive partners and friends, including our own Dr. Whitney Jones. So thank you. Oh, my pleasure. So Paul, did you have any cancer in your family that sort of preconditioned you for, for this fight as a physician and then as a gastroenterologist? No, my grandmother had early stage breast cancer, which never really became a big issue because it was detected early and she had a great outcome. It was really that experience at Sloan Kettering that, that sort of instilled in me desire to, to pursue this field. And at this point, I have no regrets. So it's been quite rewarding. Well, what do you think drove you to clinical bench research? You, you had started off in academics. I mean, Sidney Winterworth's amazing studies and clinical studies back in the 90s that helped shape the foundation of what we do now. What were you born with that you take sort of from your early adulthood that, that really made you suitable for this public health work that you've really jumped into? I think it was really the, the, the mentorship and, uh, that Dr. Winifer provided. I did, as I mentioned, do a stint in the laboratory, um, primarily because at the time, clinical research was really in its infancy. There weren't a lot of funding opportunities doing clinical research, and it was a be widely believed that the only credible academic gastroenterologists were those who had a bench interest. So I got sidetracked, as I mentioned. I enjoyed my lab time. I learned a lot. It was a great experience. But I really did feel that my calling was more related to you know, clinical research and public health initiatives. Are you a people person or, you know, you're, now well, you're a people person? That was the issue is that I always felt that I was misplaced in the laboratory. And the irony was is that when I came out of my fellowship, my intent was always to be a clinician who did bench research and not a bench researcher who was forced to do clinical work, as many bench researchers are. But unfortunately, because of my track record in the lab, I was being pegged as a bench researcher. And I never felt comfortable with that role, even though, as I say, it was rewarding and I enjoyed it for a while. But I quickly realized it was time to move on and deal more with the public sector. For those not in the academic business, the, the classic triple threat was the researcher and the clinician and the educator. And so uh, that was a common track uh, back in the 1990s and even earlier through that. So have you learned anything from your work in the cancer business that you now take back home to your family and your friends and your children going to college? Have you learned anything that you've transferred back into your daily life from your research and your work in the cancer prevention business? Well, it's interesting, you know, like so many of us, we can, it's easy to stand on a soapbox and preach to the masses. It's a lot harder to get buy-in from your own family members and friends. Although I must admit, most of them have taken me up on uh, the importance of screening. Um, and many of them are very health conscious. I'm lucky to be surrounded by people who take health seriously. So it hasn't been as hard to sell to my friends as it was to my family. But at this point, I think uh, most of them have bought into the, the process and, uh, no regrets on their part. In fact, they all, like everyone says, the colonoscopy wasn't nearly as bad as the prep. So, <laughs> you know, that sort of helps along the road. And many of them have had polyps now, so they feel it was a rewarding experience. 
Well, as many members in my family say, you know, the colonoscopy can't be worse than having to have to listen to you all these years about colon cancer screening and prevention. So, so did you have a defining moment when you were in the lab or you were, you know, in, in that sort of flux period where you said, that's it, I'm going to make this jump from the lab to the, the clinical bench, if you will? I can't really say there was a defining moment in that transition because, as I mentioned, I really was more focused on uh, moving out of the lab and getting into clinical side of research and service. But in my own research, there was a defining moment. And it's amazing how your interest in that in research get uh, channeled based on personal experiences or perspective. But this was early in the 2000s, it became readily apparent that we were having a hard sell on colon cancer screening. And it turned out that colonoscopy at the time was a particularly hard sell. There weren't even guidelines until 1997 that endorsed colorectal cancer screening by colonoscopy for average risk individuals. And when we looked at our volume at Boston Medical Center, it was low overall, but we had a no-show rate of more than 50% um, for procedures. And that is, uh, has a number of downstream consequences. Uh, first of all, those patients aren't getting screened appropriately. Secondly, you're filling up your schedule, so every, your schedule's got backlogged by months. And that's a, a mixed message to people waiting. If this is important, why do I have to wait six months? Um, and so that's where I became aware of the concept of uh, patient preference during screening and shared decision-making. So the next 20 years have really been focused on promoting that concept of patient preference-driven screening, whereby patients identify a preferred screening strategy and then and sort of engage their physician in the discussion around the pros and cons of whatever their choice may be so they come up with a mutual decision on which, way to, which, which test to pursue. Right, and as a gastroenterologist, I think that's particularly important because we tend to be raised as colonoscopy-driven people. So much literature is driven around the colonoscopy as the gold standard, the best test. I mean, certainly we love identifying polyps and taking them out and preventing cancer. But that was new work 20 years ago. I mean, I recall all the folks who talked about FOBT and then FIT, and it's taken quite a long time to really embrace shared decision-making from the GI standpoint, and I think uh, from public health. Your, your comments about that? Yeah, we, um, I recall that I worked with the uh, head of our family, or general internal medicine department, who swore to me that no person in the right nine would undergo a colonoscopy. So he was a strong believer in stool blood testing. And our pendulum has swung just completely the opposite way to the point where our primary care docs, and it may be unique to Boston Medical Center and unique to Massachusetts since we have about 90% covered, uh, patients covered, uh, have coverage for insurance and for procedures like colonoscopy, that now they don't even think about doing alternative tests other than colonoscopy. And now we're into this, we swung the other way where a lot of those patients still aren't getting screened because they don't want a colonoscopy. And we find that about a third of patients really are disinclined to undergo colonoscopy as a screening test. So now it's hard to twist their arms and to consider other options besides colonoscopy. That may not be true nationwide, but in our institution, it's swung completely the other way where every patient gets referred for colonoscopy, whether they've agreed to the procedure or not. And how do you think that's related to the fact that Massachusetts has universal health care coverage? 
as well as the fact that you've got lots of capacity uh, up there. I believe your screening rates are approaching 80%, am I correct, in Massachusetts? Yes. So that's an amazing accomplishment. But how does capacity and coverage impact those shared decision-making choices? Because I know the COVID has affected a lot of the feedback that we're getting here about which of those decisions they make about the type of screening. Can you give us a little background in probably the most covered and most screened state in the nation? Well, as I say, there's been tremendous buy-in on screening from a variety of fronts. And one of the big barriers elsewhere is the fact that patients lack coverage or historically lack coverage, less so today than 10, 15 years ago, although there's concern going forward that patients may lose coverage. But the fact that we, we assume that every patient has coverage, that eliminates the need to include that issue when they're having a shared decision-making discussion. It, we assume that everyone can get a colonoscopy who wants a colonoscopy. And that in turn has switched the pendulum as I've mentioned. And the fact that we have a large number of physicians and medical centers in Massachusetts certainly helps the cause. You know, like we're not a, uh, a medically disadvantaged state in any way, even though Western part of the state has lower capacity than Eastern side where, where Boston is and a lot of larger cities. Nonetheless, it seems like we're able to deal with the capacity issue, even though there were many years where that was one of the arguments against using colonoscopy as a singular screening test, that we would not have the capacity to screen the 40-odd million patients who needed to be screened. Um, so it may be relevant in other states, and that's where some risk stratification may play a role. But in Massachusetts, the assumption is anyone can pay. In fact, we usually felt that the patients who lacked insurance were more likely to good get good care than those who had insurance. So there was, even though everyone had some insurance, the people who had private insurance had more barriers to getting screened than the people who had public assistance in getting screened. So it's sort of unique to Massachusetts, but it has paid dividends. And as you noted, we're among the highest states, if not the highest in the country to, uh, in terms of screening leads. Do you want to give a shout out to your institution and how they've helped support the work in colorectal cancer screening amongst the patients as, and, and also in the educational component? Well, the institution has done a very good job in promoting screening for several reasons. One, it's the right thing to do, and they recognize that. Uh, second, and this is thankful to some regulatory issues, is that everyone's monitoring screening rates. And so it's important for your bottom line that you're showing that you're doing a good job screening your patients. Um, so, that's another reason that they're supportive of the ideas. They know it on the, in terms of uh, their financial, there's financial rewards to doing screening, as well as the, uh, the humanitarian side of things. And that's been great. And we're lucky enough at Boston University as we have a very prominent school of public health. And they've taken the initiative in a lot of areas of prevention, whether it be drunk driving, whether it be nutrition, or whether it be cancer screening, that, um, that, that's a very useful uh, area of support for, for my, my interest in, and for screening in general. And also we, care, we cater to a very you know, indigent and population and very diverse population. And so for whatever reason, these groups are at the higher risk for developing colon cancer as well as many other chronic health conditions. And so the, the institution is uh, byline is exceptional care without exception. So 
as again, it's an important metric that we're screening our patients and offering the best care possible. And in terms That's of- a great tagline. It reflects back on the issues about the, the school public health being there. And in general, I was involved in a course for years uh, on cancer prevention as a public health issue, um, which was supported by the school public health and by the medical school. Well, talk about changing behavior in America. You were one of the authors of the original study from the multi-society task force that recommended that we begin to benchmark colonoscopies for quality. Uh, I can tell you personally as a clinician that really changed the game, I believe, for many physicians, including the quality of PrEP, and you've been involved in the Boston Bowel PrEP Prevention Score. Uh, talk a little bit about benchmarking and how important that is to delivering screening quality to people? Well, I think the whole issue of quality has really gained a lot of, a lot of notoriety in the last decade. And some of that was driven by the data itself. There were two studies published in the mid-2000s that one said that, colon, uh, that screening and colonoscopy uh, are you know, the, the, the best test for reducing incidence of mortality. But then another study came out questioning the, 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 the uh, effectiveness of colonoscopy for reducing incidence of mortality related to proximal colon cancers, that is cancers on the right side of the colon. And so everybody started reconsidering why we're doing such a poor job in screening the right side of the colon. And a number of obvious things came out. We, uh, you know, you're more likely to have a poor prep in the right colon. You're more likely to find flat polyps, which are harder to detect at colonoscopy. There's a concern there could be a different biology to polyps in the right colon. And so this resulted in trying to provide benchmarks that optimize the likelihood that we could improve the performance of colonoscopy, not only in the right colon, but throughout the colon. And there was a lot of discussion at that time, what were the appropriate benchmarks? And so the, prominent, the, the most prominent one that came out of that was the polyp detection rate, being a good gauge as to how individuals were performing against their peers. And the irony with those numbers is they were set relatively low because at the time our, our scopes weren't nearly as good as they are today. And so there's still, you know, recommended targets for your um, polyp detection rates, but the numbers of those polyps continues to increase as we find more and more little polyps that may not be biologically significant. But nonetheless, it does serve as a good parameter for measuring one's performance against his peers. And I think the quality issue is a critically important one. Uh, Dr. Winower was, uh, was, was uh, quoted as saying, the best screening test is the test that gets done. And that has been modified to say, the best screening test is the one that gets done and gets done well. So I think quality is of critical importance to this whole cancer screening. Because the other side of this is the philosophical side of screening is that unlike you know, treating medical disease, where the outcomes are sort of, you're taking a sick patient and trying to make them well. In the case of screening, you're taking a well patient and potentially telling them they're sick. And even though we can modify that or alter that natural history, it's still a different standard. And so using quality is an important component of making sure you're doing, you know, you're conveying the right information to these otherwise healthy patients. 
Oh, that's a, I can't explain to people how foundationally that changed what happened in that endoscopy suite. But you've also been on the cusp of many other uh, foundations of organizations. You were a founding member of the National Colon Cancer Roundtable and also of your state piece. Can you tell clinical gastroenterologists or other folks how important it is to be engaged in these public health organizations, particularly at the state level when you, when you engage with Massachusetts versus being on the sidelines and just doing your clinical work day to day? Well, I think it takes a certain sort of person to want to make that commitment for, to a public health approach to disease, or in this case, colon cancer and colon cancer screening. Um, certainly, it takes a village, as we well know, to make change. And so it's important that you identify individuals who share your belief and then come together and define a, a, a common goal and objective and a plan to get there. And that's what basically happened in Massachusetts is I was lucky enough to meet with a woman, Martha Woods, who was head of the chronic disease, disease division of the um, Department of Public Health. And at the time, mid this is 1994, 1995, again, screening was just becoming a hot topic. Um, she believed, she bought into the belief that it's important for Massachusetts. So it's important to have key partners in the right positions to move things forward. And so then we brought together a group of people who were prominent in the area of prevention, whether it be colon or breast or whatever, prominent in areas of nutrition, because we felt that it was uh, it, it was important to bring up primary prevention in terms of reduction of, of uh, modifiable back, uh, risk factor exposure. And um, the common core there really was effective in advancing, moving the needle forward. But like so many other things, funding becomes a critical issue. So if you look at it, the productivity of our working group, we were incredibly influential for about 10 years. And then the state cut back funding during that 2007, 2008 recession period. And we weren't able to really accomplish what we wanted to do. So it takes a combination of tremendous commitment, a good game plan, a, you know, a team of dedicated partners, as well as, you know, financial or other types of resources like manpower to move the needle forward or continue to move the needle forward. So what were the early days of the round table like? It was interesting. Um, we met in Washington and we had three groups, working groups. One was public awareness, one was professional education, and one was policy. And I had the honor of co-chairing the public awareness task group, even though I thought I should have been in the professional education side of things. Uh, and the issues that we dealt with then were so different than what we deal with now. At the time, we were trying to come up with a uniform message on the importance of screening. And we purposely focused on average risk rather than high-risk individuals, such as those with a family history, because we perceived that Familial risk was well appreciated by primary care doctors in that, and even patients themselves realized that maybe they're a group who should get screened or be screened. But the average risk group was under screened, and we didn't want to really uh, dilute the message by including high risk. So we spent a lot of time making sure we focused on average risk patients. And there was a big debate on whether to include humor in our approach, because 
We didn't want to minimize the importance, but at the time we thought humor might be the right approach to get buy-in. But there was a subsequent group of our, uh, of, our, of our working group who felt that maybe humor is not appropriate. So there's a lot of debate about the role of humor. And not long after they came out with the Polyp Man, American Cancer Society. And so that was a, a big leap forward in terms of the use of humor. The other thing is, could we ever make discussions around colonoscopy normative to the extent that you might hear it on a sitcom or see it on television in, uh, you know, in everyday watching? And, and it turned out it finally did get adopted. So we were able to accomplish the goals that we set out. But at the time, it was a lot of debate over these seemingly small issues now related to screening. So we have come a long way. And then one of the other big issues we had was getting insurance companies to cover colonoscopy. At the time, that was not, as I mentioned earlier, considered to be an appropriate screening test by many. And insurance companies did not want to cover colonoscopy. And we also focused a lot of our early energies on defining a HEDIS measure that would also prompt insurance companies and physicians to increase their screening rates. And that was a bigger, big move forward. But it was different then than it is now, even though we're still challenged to keep being, uh, you know, making progress in increasing our screening rates. Very good. So you've not only been involved, but you've actually turned these ideas into impact. Any hints out there to someone who's trying to, has a great idea, but wants to translate that into an actual program or an actual uh, piece of work? Well, I think it really uh, focused on a few things. I think you need strong leadership skills. Somebody needs to take onus on this whole process. You need strong partners and a team approach with a common cause. You need perseverance because none of this happens overnight. And again, as I mentioned before, you need tremendous support, whether it be financial, manpower, or otherwise, just to put a lot of leverage on the process and, and, and try to really gain exposure to sometimes a very you know resistant audience. Not this stuff is not easy. It was not an easy sell 20 years ago, 10 years ago. It's still a hard sell for a segment of the population, but we've, we've made tremendous progress, but it really takes a, a, a long-term commitment. Nothing happens overnight. So when you speak about leadership, what specific leadership skills are, are needed, particularly for physicians? As I said, I think that's so critical that they step out of their day job and, and do some work in these other areas. And uh, I, I'm curious what you think those leadership skills are that physicians may be born with or have to develop. Um, I think it's a combination. I, I think that the, the leadership skills you're alluding to really are, uh, pertain to leadership skills in other areas. You need a clear vision of the key goals and objectives of what you're trying to accomplish. You need to be able to clearly articulate the goals and objectives to others. You need the ability to identify strategic partners and stakeholders. You need to be able to inspire motivate and empower others. No one can do this on their own. And you need to encourage, I think, constructive feedback. It's a lot of give and take in, in, in working through some of these challenges. And you need the ability to deliver results. So some people are born leaders, some people have to develop into leaders. In the case of cancer though, I think it also requires a tremendous amount of compassion and empathy. 
because in this, in, that, in this case, we're dealing with the lives of thousands of individuals afflicted with cancer. And this is a, a, a very you know, personal issue for so many that we really have to be, under, we have to understand that at, at a personal level to, under, to, to move and get buy-in from the target population. I believe that's so critical, that last part about being sensitive, because I will tell you, I, when I started this work, I sort of thought, you know, gosh, people getting colon cancer, how can they be so knuckleheaded, you know, to have not done screening and prevention, but certainly years into this, people do everything right, or for whatever reason, didn't get the message. Uh, and, and really, you know, I have a whole different view on, on, on that compassion piece and that broader sense about people who face these diseases that are truly, truly life-threatening and life-changing. And to that point, one of our colleagues, uh, Dennis Anand, is struggling and facing uh, colon cancer at this time after being a leading researcher and a leading advocate uh, in the nation for this. So I think what you've said is really clear, that, that, that sympathetic part and understanding that this is so dramatic in people's lives you want to expand on that? Because I think that's all been a shock to all of us. We lost Dr. Tom Weber a year ago. And I think this is so impactful. Sometimes we don't feel that as we're doing the work. Yeah, I mean, you, you brought up a lot of the high points. I think an area that we're particularly sensitive to now is the area of early onset colon cancer. Because there, it's not sure what the right thing is to do to prevent colon cancer. You know, we have screening recommendations for older individuals, beginning at age 45 or 50, depending on which guideline you follow. But you hear these stories of younger individuals who have developed colon cancer, but, and they were doing all the right things you would think from a primary prevention. They were healthy, they were eating good diets, they exercised, they had kept normal weight, and... In this case, we don't know what to offer them. It's become a real challenge. And those stories ring, resonate particularly strongly since they are younger, very productive individuals who have, uh, have challenges and, and life-threatening diseases at a very early age. And it's really heart-wrenching to hear some of those stories. So the personal piece becomes particularly relevant when we identify these niches of the patients we're not serving at this point. And that's where we have to keep moving forward and, and improving our ability to identify that group and, and do the appropriate uh, treatment or in this case, screening. So the challenges remain. Well, that's a great segue because you know, knowing your work about benchmarking the quality of colonoscopy, do you see any role for us benchmarking the collection of family history? Uh, because I still think that's one of, as we all know, not just myself, but all of the folks who are engaged in this, we think that's one of our greatest opportunities because even though a lot of folks have sporadic colon cancer, maybe 60% in that under 50 age group, uh, there's about 40% of them that have some history or something in their family, either polyps or cancers and colon and rectum that should have led to that earlier screening. And it's one of the big uglies in, in GI that we, we know we don't do so great at it, but we, we haven't been able to crack the nut on that one. Any thoughts about how we might get over that hump? Well, education is certainly important. We do not do a good job at capturing information on family history. Um, I mean, certainly 
primary care doctors and gastroenterologists alike often ask a few simple questions related to family history. And this is one of the big shortcomings of the electronic health rather, uh, record is that once something gets documented in the health record, people tend not to update it or add to it. So I know, for instance, we had a patient once upon a time, I forget what I saw before in the clinic, but the only prior no family history was documented by the podiatrist, and there was no family history of bunions. And there was nothing else under family history, and then subsequent to the podiatrist, because they had seen numerous physicians, and no one updated the, the family history to address heart disease, cancer, whatever. Um, so I think the electronic record has great potential to be a way to capture information, to prompt physicians, to collect the appropriate family history, to risk stratify, and to make appropriate recommendations around screening and surveillance. But at this point, many of the vendors have heard us but haven't modified their records to, to help us. But certainly creating some kind of metric um, for reimbursement as a quality measure would be an important step forward because it is relevant to cancer, it's relevant to heart disease, but primary care doctors often say that they just don't have the time or energy to ask about family history on a, on, on a regular basis. But if prompted, perhaps we could get more buy-in. Well, and using the artificial intelligence that goes along with this whole computing industry to not only help the clinicians collect it through patient portals, but then I think the second missing piece is applying that toward a system that's in place. In other words, applying them towards NCC and guidelines about who may or may not require earlier testing or potentially genetic testing, because there's so much overlap of different cancers. When we think colorectal, I think, you know, 20 years ago, I thought colon, colon, colon. Now, breast interacts with it, pancreas interacts with it, gastric tumors. There's all kinds of things that uh, and I think they're too busy for clinicians every day to be up with. That's why we need a system approach that helps collect it, uh, apply it towards guidelines, and then represents that to the physician and the patient as a discussion point during those visits. I totally agree. Um, certainly one of the shortcomings, but potential uh, utilities of, of, of these, the electronic health worker is in the area of clinical decision making that it's certainly possible to, to identify high-risk individuals and make appropriate recommendations for management. However, the problem again is, you know, you're only going to get out what you put in. So someone has to put in the data to start with. And Dr. Dennis Anand and Dr. Heather Hample, who I think you have had had a guest or will have one, have come up with some of the key um, uh, features that should be captured or key elements that should be captured in an electronic health record that would facilitate that process in terms of age of diagnosis, number of affected relatives, degree of closeness, whether it be a first degree relative, second degree relative, and relevant cancers that would help identify some of these uh, high-risk syndromes associated with risk. So there is progress being made there, but that's one of the areas we still um, need to move forward on. Well, in that, I think we ought to shift over a little bit. Let's do a little lightning round work with you, Dr. Shroy. I'd like to get your opinion on some uh, areas that I think are uh, out there for 
colorectal cancer and maybe areas of discussion and dispute. So you can do quick answers. You can do whatever you want. Remember, this is a podcast, right? I'm on the edge of my head. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, let's talk about uh, age for screening normal risk individuals. 45 or 50, what do you support and should it be supported nationally? Well, certainly age 50 has been the starting age recommended by most of the societies until very recently. But if you take a good look at the data, it's particularly compelling that we need to start at age 45 for a couple reasons. Number one is this increase in early onset colon cancer. It turns out a large percentage of those patients are really in that 45 to 50 age group. So it would have an impact there. Secondly, we know that although screening rates and mortality, incidence of mortality have diminished for individuals over 55, the 50 to 55-year-old group has not seen these declines. And it's largely because of delays in screening. So if we initiate screening at 45, hopefully that group will be screened by age 50, if not 45. And so that's another reason to do age 45. And thirdly, it might help identify those with a family history sooner that hopefully the discussions begin before age 45, in which case you might hopefully identify people with a family history who should get screened in that 40 year, around 40 years. So I think all those, for those reasons alone, age 45 makes sense. And then the uh, modeling has clearly supported the importance of beginning at 45, that it is basically a cost effective approach to dealing with uh, colon cancer in general, and particularly the early age onset group. So will USPSTF change in their next cycle in 2021 based on their capacity to review? I mean, there is compelling data, but generally they base their recommendations on randomized controlled trials and very strong case control or cohort study. And I don't know that we have that kind of data, even though the data we have is rather convincing. So it really depends on what information they um, incorporate into their their recommendation. But I personally believe the data is compelling, but to the extent that they adopt it, we'll have to wait and see. There have been uh, at least one new stool type test, the stool DNA test that has come out and several others on the horizon, including blood or even urine uh, for screening non-invasive waste. What's your opinion on structural screening and colonoscopy being the number one versus these uh, non-colonoscopy options? And I'll even include CT colonography in that. Uh, Where's the evolution going to occur? And then if there's any space for a little dialogue around how COVID has affected the capacity to access testing, this is a great time to throw that in. Okay. Well, you know, as you mentioned, I believe colonoscopy is the best test for identifying polyps and thereby reducing incidence of colon cancer. The other screening tests are really early detection tests where you're picking up curable cancers. And so from a public health perspective, that may make some sense. But from an individual perspective, I think you'd like to prevent the cancer altogether rather than wait till you get an early cancer. Nonetheless, I think that, as I mentioned earlier in our discussion, that many patients do not buy into the idea of having a colonoscopy. So I strongly think that these other non-structural approaches or particularly school-based tests have a role because in our own work, we found that about a third of patients would not, you know, refuse to have a colonoscopy no matter how many times their doctor beats them over the head. And many of those would agree to having a stool test. 
Whether or not they'll complete the stool test, we don't know. Maybe just to get the doctor off their back. But uh, I think there's a real role, and they, and, and they are good tests now. Certainly the FIT test is better than the old WIAC test, and the stool DNA, stool blood test, multi-targeted test that, uh, that exact sciences is marketing is a, a very good test as well with some improved sensitivity but diminished specificity um, compared to FIT testing. So I think those options need to be on the table. Personally, I think CT colonoscopy would be a great option. There is issues around radiation exposure and the detection of other non-significant findings that would warrant downstream evaluation. But in reality, it would be great to put someone through a CT scanner in about three minutes or five minutes and get a pretty good structural exam of the colon that really compares with colonoscopy quite favorably for polyps bigger than six millimeters. But I don't know that that's going to catch on to the extent that uh, that, that some of these other tests have. It's been around a long time, but for whatever reason, it just hasn't gotten much buy-in. But I think that certainly patient preference screening is important to get buy-in, and that's why I support having these other options available to patients. And in terms of COVID, I mean, our institution, probably your institution, we had a tremendous cutback in colonoscopy services, particularly for things like screening. And so we create this tremendous backlog. And because of that, we recommended that patient get stool blood testing as an interim way to screen. But now we have a backlog of positive cases. And so we've, we've opened a different can of worms around making up for the backlog of uh, positive tests that are out there. So that's going to be a challenge going forward, so is somehow coming up with a strategic way of getting those patients in promptly and uh, you know, ensuring that you know we find whatever that might cause in that positive school blood test sooner than later. Well, it's very interesting how the COVID has has altered what was that huge trend towards colonoscopy-driven screening, and certainly that triage effect where people who aren't being able who aren't screened with structural exams like colonoscopy are choosing these interim tests. But again, that triage leads to that question of how do you get them in when they have a positive and you already have a backlog. So I think these are really challenging issues that we're going to have to deal with. And I also believe that we'll see other modalities, urine testing, stool, uh, blood testing, other things. I can't believe we're just uh, done and have a binary world of stool versus blood. We have too much science going on right now. And eventually when they come up with a great test that's $20, it's great for finding polyps too. How are we going to, you know, shift our focus? That's going to be a very interesting time. I think it's, I think it's coming also. Will be, no. There's a, a lot of work in that area. Everyone's all has, has aimed at coming up with a, a, a blood test, a simple blood test that obviates the need for, you know, things like colonoscopy. And you could do more targeted evaluation of those patients. But, and there's some good data coming out on, on, on a one or two different stool, uh, blood tests. Urine test, I know there was a group in Canada that thought they might be able to pick up polyps at a high rate using a urine test, but I haven't seen the data to know how solid that is. But there's always a goal of finding very simple, non-invasive tests. Because in reality, colonoscopy um, really is not an appropriate screening test if you look at characteristics of a good screening test. Simple, can be done at home, low cost, you know, low minimal preparation 
say all these things, you know, not many boxes get checked off for colonoscopy, even though it's become the preferred screening method by many. So I think that work will continue, and I wouldn't be surprised if we do have newer non-invasive tests down the road that continue to get buy-in from patients. In addition to disruptive screening technology, any thoughts about disruptive computer or artificial intelligence technology that might help us do a better job of identifying those folks at higher risk, uh, educating folks at higher risk? Uh, I was lucky enough to have you and Dr. Anand uh, work on a paper on increasing screening for both high-risk and normal-risk individuals by getting that message out earlier and really engaging them. Don't you think computers ought to try to be helping us rather than us being, you know, their data entry uh, minions, which is how I think a lot of GI guys feel? I mean, certainly the whole idea of, of using artificial intelligence is the wave of the future such that based on information put into a computer, even when it, though it may not appear readily relevant to the naked eye or risk factor assessment, it may help identify patients and give more precise estimates of risk and timing of, of screening. So I think there's a real potential there. But the issue you were alluding to is this on-time screening. I mean, that doesn't even require artificial intelligence. We know that we just should- Just intelligence. Just intelligence. <laughs> I mean, clearly the data supports the fact that a lot of individuals in that 50 to 54-year-old age range and now 45 to 54, you know, aren't being screened on time. And so we need to change the paradigm of when you initiate the discussion on screening. Waiting until someone's 50 probably isn't appropriate. And even if you buy into age 45 as a starting date, waiting until age 45 isn't appropriate. You really need to begin discussions much earlier and that discussion should include a, an assessment of risk, whether it be family history or whether it be issues around nutrition and exercise and smoking and alcohol. But you really need to have those discussions. The nice thing about colon cancer, though, is if there is a nice thing about colon cancer, is that many of the risk factors for colon cancer are the same as they are for cardiovascular disease. You know, weight and diet and exercise and you shouldn't smoke and those things. So it's really a common message that really should begin earlier. But we really believe that patients should begin, you know, this risk assessment by age 21, 18 to 21, to hopefully identify the very high risk groups. And then periodically, you know, reassess and inquire about family history. And if we're able to adopt that, paradigm that people with a family history would be picked up earlier and that patients, when they get up to the age of appropriate screening, will be more comfortable with the concept. And that could actually spread out the discussion over years rather than at one point in time, which also might build buy-in from the patients and allow shared decision-making to take place over a period of time. Well, Big thanks to you and Dennis for helping advance those ideas yeah, and, uh, Hopefully there'll be some traction on that. Absolutely. So, so you're, 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 we're part of the medical industrial complex, you know, uh, generally focused on colon cancer. Where does the medical industrial complex have an opportunity to succeed more aggressively? And also, where do you think that's falling short? What can we do as clinicians and researchers and public health folks to help bring that in the right direction? Because tech is, tech is winning everything now. Well, I think that, in general, that the, uh, there's been tremendous innovation and technological advances 
related to both endoscopic diagnosis and treatment, as well as the development of these new and improved alternative screening strategies, which you've alluded to, CT colonography, fit testing, multi-target stool DNA testing, et cetera. They've also been quite supportive in terms of research funding um, and resources to, to um, resulting in improvements in the areas of screening diagnosis and endoscopic treatment as well as uh, support for educational activities. So I think industry by and large has been supportive. I think where their biggest uh, shortcoming has been in the area of electronic health records and artificial intelligence, as you alluded to. Um, you know, many of the vendors have upgraded their products and with respect to creating reminders for patients and physicians and documenting screening test performance, but much more could be done to promote all time screening as we were just discussing through lead time messaging, as well as risk assessment and clinical decision-making. So I think that's the biggest area where industry could help with this, with this cause. And uh, to the extent that they're doing that, again, I think there's some interest, but it really could, could proven is certainly um, warranted. Well, you certainly in your story career had to deal with some things that didn't go your way. I, I don't know them, but I'm sure they are. Any tips out there for either clinicians or researchers or for people who may be fa facing cancer uh, in terms of how you've been able to overcome adversity or deal with adversity? Well, I think that one thing that has helped deal with adversity is the fact that we've had a number of successes. And the fact that we know that we can make progress in this field has been reinforcing to my own efforts, even though, you know, things don't always work out as, as you hope. For instance, in research, it's patients never read the book. They never don't do what you expect them to do half the time. So you got to accept that and realize that it's a slow process and that it does take a lot of effort to, um, to make advances in this field. You need a lot of, uh, you know, you can't do it personally, as I keep mentioning. You really need a team approach with a lot of, of, of talented and passionate individuals to help achieve the goals you set out to do. And like I said, the other thing that's helped me deal with adversity is the compelling personal stories from those afflicted with cancer. That certainly helps motivate you, even though you feel like the progress isn't being made at the speed you would like it to see it. It is a, a constant reinforcing element to, to deal with personal, uh, personal stories from patients who have cancer. So gastroenterologist for 39 years, researcher, national leader, what motivates you to keep pushing after such a storied career? And, and I say that when I'm thinking about you working for Sid Winower, who, who, as far as I know, maybe just now stopped in the last year. What motivates you to keep pushing? Because you certainly continue to lead at the national level. Well, again, I think it's the, what I mentioned previously is I think certainly the success we've observed has been reinforcing, you know, and we know that we have not achieved the end goal yet, but that we've made tremendous progress and we're getting closer to the goal line. So that has been a uh, reinforcing factor. Uh, certainly the opportunity to continue to work with outstanding individuals like yourself who are so compassionate and passionate about this, pro this whole cause 
And again, the life stories of individuals around me. Um, we know that people still get colon cancer and die of colon cancer. So the work's not done. And until we eliminate colon cancer as a public health issue, I think there's plenty to keep me motivated. So Dr. Shroy, gastroenterologist researcher, what is your prescription for those who might be facing a cancer fight either in their career or personally? What's Dr. Shroy's prescription? Well, I've also, I've had my own personal health issues, so I know how challenging it can be when it hits home as opposed to affecting, it's better to be the, the doctor than the patient I've found out. Um, but it is a struggle. You, you need a positive outlook, which is not always easy in the face of a diagnosis of cancer. You need to um, do everything you can do in terms of maintaining your health. Otherwise, through nutrition, activity, you need tremendous support from individuals around you, whether it be personal relatives, friends, and uh, your physicians. That certainly plays a big role. So it is a challenge. I know that from my own personal issues, it took months for me to uh, deal with my own health issue. And I finally have overcome the depression and anxiety I dealt with. But you just, you know, try to stay as positive as you can. The good news is that we've made great advances in the treatment of cancer. Um, but it is a struggle and you've got to accept that there's a struggle. So I don't know if I could shed much more advice than that, but I try to stay positive and convey that to my patients. Oh, those are great words uh, to finish on. I wanna thank you, Paul, for taking the time out of your busy day to be a guest on Cancer Fight, answer some hard questions, certainly some tough issues, but uh, congratulations on your body of work and thanks for sharing that with our listeners. Well, thank you, Whitney. It's been a real pleasure and thank the audience for uh, listening into your podcast, which are doing a great public service. So thank you personally. Paul Troy, Boston University Medical Center. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for being with us today on Cancer Fight. To keep up with our work, follow Colon Cancer Prevention Project on all major social media platforms and visit our website, kickingbutt.org. Special thanks to our producer, Keaton Jones, and our director, Maggie Cunningham. Until next time, fight on, cancer warriors.